0: It's Tuesday, July the 20th, and you're listening to Matters of Policy and Politics, a Hoover Institution podcast devoted to governance and balance of power here in America and around the free world. I'm Bill Whalen. I'm the Virginia Hobbs Carpenter Distinguished Policy Fellow in Journalism here at the Hoover Institution. While well, I can lay claim to that title, I am not the only Hoover Fellow doing podcasting these days. And rather than to give you chapter and verse of each and every podcast we're doing, I recommend that you go to Hoover's website, which is www.hoover.org. Uh, When you click on there, go to the Publications tab and go to where it says Podcast, and uh, you'll see the whole bevy of them in front of you. We do economics, we do education, we do uh, national security, which is topic of today's podcast. Uh, You can subscribe to any or all of them. You can also sign up for our monthly Podblast, which delivers the best of our podcast to you each month. Hoover Podcast, just one facet of ideas defining a free society. My guest today is my colleague Gary Roughhead. Gary Ruffhead, Admiral Gary Ruffhead, is the Robert and Marion Oster Distinguished Military Fellow here at the Hoover Institution. Admiral Ruffhead served his nation proudly as a service warfare officer. He owns the historical distinction of being one of only two officers to have commanded both the Atlantic and Pacific fleets. Admiral Ruffhead serves as a commandant at the United States Naval Academy. In September 2007, he was appointed the nation's 29th Chief of Naval Operations. Today, Admiral Ruffhead chairs Hoover's Arctic Security Working Group and serves as a member of Hoover's Energy Military History and Natural Security Task Forces. Last month, he was asked to spearhead the institution's Veteran Fellowship Program. This is veterans, officers, and enlistees the Hoover Institution is turning to. Uh, We're looking for good men and women who want to give back to their communities. Gary, thanks for coming on the podcast today. Well, thank you very much, Bill, and
1: thanks for uh, making note of the Veterans Fellowship Program, I think it's a really exceptional initiative that Hoover has undertaken, and I really look forward to seeing some great candidates uh, come forward and selecting some fellows to participate in that program.
0: Right. Explain briefly, Gary, we're looking for a few good men and women, about, about 10 individuals with that to kick off this program. What, what exactly, if someone listening to this is interested in signing up for this program for, uh, for applying to it, what qualities are we looking for?
1: Well, I would say, first off, it's we're looking for those who have served on active duty in any of the military services. Uh, mm-hmm. Also, um, in the National Guard, that they and those in the National Guard, we uh, require that they have been activated uh, either uh, for a disaster relief or some of the disorder that we've experienced. But uh, what we want is someone who has served within the last 20 years um who has a desire to engage in in issues and try and who wants to solve problems that our country faces today Mm -hmm. Uh, to be able to apply the experiences they had in the military the Mm -hmm. leadership that they developed in the military to look at uh, problems that need to be solved and to present and work with the broader Hoover-Stanford community and developing solutions for that. So uh, someone who who really wants to change uh, the nation and indeed change the world.
0: Sounds great. I'm looking forward to seeing who we come up with. I think we're going to get some outstanding candidates. So there is uh, a lot I'd like to get into today with regard to the U.S. Navy. I want to talk about the budgetary outlook, the size of the fleet, Gary. I also want to talk about leadership. Uh, within the uh, within the Navy, and also the question of the politicization of military um, uh, officers, of generals, the top echelon of the brass. Uh, I'd like to start today by talking about Taiwan. You wrote a really good piece for the Hoover Institution Strategic a Publication on this, and uh, really got me to thinking, uh, and thinking in this regard, Um, If China were to do something, were to launch some sort of strike against Taiwan, I guess it would be the third crisis involving China and Taiwan, the other two being in the 1950s. I started thinking about the 1958 uh, situation, Gary, which was the second uh, Taiwan Strait crisis. Um, Correct me if my history is wrong here, but my impression was, well, first of all, China did not invade Taiwan per se. They went after some islands. Um, my perception of that, and again, correct me if I'm wrong, um, the Chinese were basically feeling us out at this time. They were interested in what the U.S. military response would be if if indeed they did go after Taiwan full bore. Would we, would we respond militarily? Would we launch nuclear weapons against them? Uh, China was not a nuclear power in 1958. I think they became nuclear in 1964. If I'm not mistaken. Um, but as we look at Taiwan right now, um, the question for you, Gary, is this, if you're the Chinese, would... It make more sense to just, well, as you say, Washington these days, go big and just do an all-out assault on the island, or would you do something more similar to 1958, where you go after some islands and sort of launch feelers to see what the American response is?
1: Well, I would. Uh, a couple of things, Bill. One is that I think that that uh, the mainland takes a very long, uh, very thoughtful view mm-hmm. of uh, of the region of their interests. I would add one other event that occurred in 1996 of, in which I participated, uh, as did another one of our Hoover Fellows, Jim Ellis, mm-hmm. when China launched some missiles uh, in the vicinity of uh, Taiwan to show their displeasure over some of the political moves that, that were taking place on the island. The, the US responded uh, with two carrier battle groups, one that had been, was based in Japan the one with with which I was associated was deployed in the uh, Persian Gulf mm. and we made a very high speed transit around uh, to the south of the island. Uh, and I think that was a, a very strong statement that the US did uh, uh, intend to show uh, our support and that we were willing uh, to position forces militarily. but. A lot has changed as I pointed out in my piece and uh, the region has been reshaped. Obviously it's been reshaped uh, economically by China. Mm. Uh, And also as a result of uh, the changes that China saw in how the US military could respond or would respond, uh, it began designing uh, a defensive barrier if you will, uh, the term of art is uh, A2AD, uh, uh, which is anti axis aerial denial, and they really have advanced uh, in their procurement. They have advanced in uh, the structure of their military, uh, in the size of the military. They have, um, in the maritime sense, reformed uh, the, the, the non-military maritime forces in a way that uh, with their Coast Guard, uh, a very capable Coast Guard are able to use that to surveil, to respond, and then they have a sizable maritime militia. So you know, the ability to respond uh, as boldly and as directly, uh, I think uh, China has changed that, uh, that equation uh, quite a bit. And then with the economic influence, That they have in the region, they are able to uh, potentially dissuade regional countries from more overt support for the US. So, um, you know, my sense is that, that China, I think, feels quite good about how they have set the stage. I don't believe, this is my own personal opinion, that they would move on an island as they did back in the late 50s. I think to do so would uh, not really uh, accomplish that much. And I think it would provide a basis for uh, the international community to align and uh, oppose what they would see as Chinese aggression toward Taiwan. Uh, a lot has been written recently about a, uh, an invasion of Taiwan and people have, been putting how many years before China can do it or is capable of doing it? Uh, I, I think that has been unhelpful from the standpoint that that um, one invading Taiwan is very hard. Right. Um, it is very challenging, and 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 the distance that needs to be covered, the the geography of the island itself makes it hard. And I think that what uh, what we need to think about is. How would we sustain Taiwan if China were to uh, pressure them militarily, not necessarily attack them, but as right. they did in 2020, they essentially wore out their air force. Uh, and, and then the other concern I have, and I touch on this in my paper, is a quarantine where they would restrict certain goods going in and out of Taiwan. And I think what we need to think about is how would we respond in that uh, situation and how would we sustain that uh, that vibrant democracy?
0: Right. You point out in your piece, Gary, that there are at least three options here. One's all out invasion. uh, The other one's a quarantine. Another one would be a blockade. But uh, are quarantines and blockades, is this possible, Gary? Because this is an enormous body of water. I think you uh, said in the article is what, it's double the size of the Mediterranean?
1: Uh, it's, it's two times the size of the Mediterranean. Uh, quarantines are hard, mm-hmm. but um, by operating along the sea lanes that feed the major ports into Taiwan, mm-hmm. by using uh, their Coast Guard and their maritime militia, which I think would be the, the, the maritime forces on the front line, I believe you would see the PLA hanging back, providing mm-hmm. uh, overwatch, if you will. Um, I think that they have the numbers to be able to interfere with the flow of, of supplies um, that it would be uh, a, a, a nuisance on, on those supplies going in. But I do think that it could be done. Um, I, I don't think that the term blockade would be used because blockade is to stop everything and it's an of right. war. Mm-hmm. but uh and then I think the other thing that we have to consider in circumstances like that is how would they use uh, non-kinetic means, cyber uh, uh, effects to get into financial systems, transportation systems, energy systems, uh, public services. And so I think that uh, to me, that is a more likely uh, course of measure that the mainland could take.
0: All right. So let's say for the sake of argument, the Chinese um, launch a quarantine against Taiwan. Let's also say for the sake of argument that we try to fly supplies into Taiwan, and let's further say for the sake of argument, Gary, that the Chinese shoot down an American plane. Are we now at war?
1: Uh, I think it would put us very close to that. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, we've had uh, incidents, uh, most recently the EP3 incident, where a Chinese fighter flew too close and almost as a result of the collision down the uh, uh, U.S. maritime patrol aircraft right. aircraft. Um, that um, was a very tense time, mm-hmm. but we were able to walk back from, from that incident. And quite frankly, um, I think that that's what we have to worry about the most is uh, a misstep or a mishap that takes place, reactions uh, occur, and then you could be off to the races. Uh, One of the things that's very unfortunate is that even though uh, the US and others, particularly Japan, have tried to pursue very meaningful uh, crisis management uh, protocols, uh, it really has not been successful. As much as we have tried, uh, there is no uh, real progress, in my opinion, that gets to protocols and solutions and communication paths that would be used during a time of heightened question or tensions. Uh, rather, the Chinese tend to revert back to the irritants that um, that they uh, express about our freedom of navigation operations in the South China Sea uh, activities with Taiwan. So, I, I think that's another area that uh, that, that China needs to begin to become more serious about and develop the types of crisis management protocols that are going to be required.
0: You graduated from Annapolis in 1973, I believe, uh, which means that for the next 20 years, a better part of the next 20 years, you were a naval officer during a Cold War. Um, If an ensign graduates from Annapolis in 2023, is he or she looking at 20 years of Cold War with China?
1: Uh, I really do believe that it is... um, very similar to uh, the Cold War, I wouldn't call it a Cold War, mm-hmm. but um, you know the, the thing that was quite different uh, back in the 70s, 80s, 90s, um, that we were operating in greater numbers in closer proximity to the Soviet Navy mm-hmm. um, as a result of some mishaps that took place unlike what I just touched on on crisis management uh, right. with, with China, the US and the Soviet Union put in place some very precise uh, protocols uh, mm-hmm. that really stepped us back from a lot of those dangerous activities and and I think led to a, a cooling off a toning down uh, I think the big difference for someone today who who is going to be going out and operating, is that it is, it's, a, it's a grayer environment. And in fact, the term has been used, gray zone, where uh, we're not doing Navy on Navy, maritime force on Navy, the economic levers that China has to play, very, very different. Uh, and I would argue that the young man or woman going out in the fleet today is dealing with, with a much more complex environment. Much more multifaceted in terms of the information space, the economic considerations that the countries uh, are taking into account, and quite frankly, um, uh, not the numbers of military forces that we had uh, bumping into one another during.
0: Let's talk about the fleet for a second. Uh, May twenty eighth, the uh, Navy uh, requests uh, submits its request for fiscal year twenty twenty two. It asked for only eight ships, only four of which are combatants: two Virginia class submarines, one Arleigh Burke destroyer, and one Constellation frigate. Um, Eight ships raises the question of whether or not that puts the Navy on a path to the target of 355 ships, which I think it was identified in 2016 as the ideal size for the fleet. How many ships does the United States Navy need, in your estimation?
1: Well, uh, you know that's always an interesting uh, uh, discussion that takes place around Washington, and mm-hmm. and you cited a study that the Navy had of 355. Right. Um, you know, my sense is I think that's a pretty good number. The Trump administration uh, left office with a with the high ceiling of four forty six.
0: The fleet's uh, uh, the fleet's, fleets at about what about two ninety six right now I think right. or just under three uh,
1: yeah, yeah. hundred. Yeah, close to pushing pushing on three hundred. Mm-hmm. And then the Biden administration came in with an inter- some interim guidance with the high number being three seventy two. Now right. those are manned ships. Um, you know I think it, it's it's all very easy to. Uh, look at the total ship number, and as I said, 355 was what I considered to be uh, reasonable. Uh, but it's also important, Bill, that that we look at what that 355 is composed of. Mm-hmm. And and I and unfortunately, I don't think that there's enough granularity on that. Right? Uh, you could build 355 small ships, and you know you'd make your number. But I think it's important that we look at uh, what is that force designed to do? What is the mix that we want? Mm -hmm. Um, How do you sustain that force? And and unfortunately, over the years, the type of ships that you use to support a fleet forward Mm -hmm. uh, tends not to get the attention that I think it deserves. So um, I, I think it's important to look at the mix. And I would argue that particularly in the case of China, one of the things that we cannot afford to do, and even though I'm not a submariner, although people have accused me of going over to the dark side, um, <laughs> uh, that uh, we cannot afford to lose the undersea dominance that we enjoy, not just in the Western Pacific, but I would argue in the Atlantic. Because right. as you know, Russia has a, has a, a very capable uh, submarine uh, fleet. And uh, and we need to maintain that undersea dominance, and we don't have to do it all with manned ships. My sense is that we have been very very slow uh, in moving forward on unmanned capability, mm-hmm. and and I know that the, both the Trump administration and I think you'll see more from the Biden administration uh, emphasis on unmanned capability, but uh, it has uh, been too slow in coming. The example I always cite is. We flew um, and landed and autonomously refueled an aircraft from one of our aircraft carriers in 2012. That has not happened again, which, uh, in my view, is nine years of marking time. Yet there's a lot of rhetoric, uh, not just within administrations, within the executive branch, but also on the Hill about how important it is to get to unmanned capability. And unfortunately, it's taking too long.
0: I'm curious about the future of destroyers in the Navy, Gary. The Early Burke class uh, has been around for quite some time now. I think we're running toward the end of constructing them. Um, I know it's a big story. You like to uh, spend time in Maine. Bath Iron Works in Maine has been building Early Burke's. This is a big deal if they get out of the business of that. Uh, who knows what the future of that shipyard is. Um, what is the future of destroyers in the Navy?
1: Well, I think that um, you know the Navy is looking at that now. Um, mm-hmm. The new combatant that's being built, um, is the new frigate, the constellation uh, right. class frigate, mm-hmm. uh, truth in advertising is that I chair the board of the company that won that contract. So, uh, <laughs> I, I will, I just wanted that to be on the, on the table. You know, the early Burke destroyer, uh, having commanded one, uh, has been a very versatile ship. It has been upgraded over the years. Right. Um, and, and, I, and I still think that uh, that class uh, still has some legs to it. That, but as technology has moved forward, uh, the Navy will need to uh, design a new ship to fill that heavier capability. Um, and, uh, and, and that process is, is, is beginning. Uh, but I, I think as I look at the budgets, one of the things that needs to take place is that the, America has to decide what type of Navy it wants right. and where does it want that Navy to be. And, uh, and in order to do that, uh, certain investments have to be made. It's very easy to look at the top line of defense, which is north of 700 billion dollars. Mm -hmm. But what I think is important is that we look at what the investment account is or the capital account. And and if we want to maintain undersea superiority, if we want to be present around the world, um, then we have to look at how much should we be investing. And, and, and then how do we want to invest? Mm-hmm. I do believe that as the, the Aegis cruisers, which is the next step up from the destroyer, right. Um, they are reaching the end of their life. In fact, uh, one of the ones that I commanded is going to, is, is on the list to be put into reserve, uh, in the coming year. Um, you know, that also will put more demand on the, on the current early Brooks. So, um, we should be accelerating. What does that next ship look like? But at the same time, we need to, I believe, be increasing the numbers uh, of the smaller combatants, of submarines, of logistic ships, um, and and be able to cover the areas of the world where we want a naval presence, not just the Western Pacific. Middle East, the maritime Middle East is still going to be very important. Right. Um, Russia is still important. So, Uh, A long answer to your question, but uh, we need to uh, fill that gap that will be left primarily by the cruisers because of the number of uh, weapons that are actually being removed from the inventory as those ships go out.
0: Right. So we look at the Pacific. So we keep a carrier at San Diego. A couple of carriers rotate out of San Diego. A carrier rotates out of um, uh, Bremerton, I guess, Everett up north. Uh, carrier in Yokosuka in Japan. Uh, I'm kind of a mil- military nerd when it comes to Google Maps. I love to look at uh, naval installations on Google Maps. It's just a nerdy thing I do. Pearl Harbor is fascinating, Gary, because you look at Pearl Harbor and what do you see? You see submarines everywhere. So we're loaded with submarines in Pearl Harbor. Um if we, though, are trying to counter the Chinese Navy, do we need to think about further deploying ships? Uh, what comes to mind, for example, is our relationship with the Philippines. We left Subic Bay, I think, in 1992. Mm-hmm. Um, the Philippines, the Philippine government's very noisy about the Chinese expansion because the Chinese are chipping away at islands close to the Philippines. Uh, do you think maybe there's an opening to talk to them about a naval presence? Um,
1: you know, we have had the presence in the Philippines. I think it's mm-hmm. important that um, we have access to facilities there. We've been working on that for quite some time. I, right. I, I would submit that, at the current state of the relationship um, mm-hmm. and the protections afforded to our people, it's probably not time to put forces in the Philippines. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I do think that the Philippines is an important uh, is important geographically. Uh, you know, to to think of putting large numbers of complex ships there now I think is, is premature. Mm-hmm. Uh, sometimes people would say, well, why don't you put another carrier in Hawaii? Um, we have looked at that, but it's also important that when we talk about putting carriers someplace, you also need to have a place where that air wing can be. Right. And, and so, um, you know, you need to look at is, is it feasible from the standpoint of putting the ship there? uh in the case of a carrier can you support the air wing and oh by the way uh how do you move uh roughly three thousand families uh right. to that place so um you know those are the challenges that the navy leadership has now that said i do think that we can move more combatants uh mm-hmm. west and in fact in the paper that we discussed earlier i advocate for biasing 80% of the fleet to the Pacific as opposed to the 60. Mm-hmm. I think it's also important that some of those ships would move forward to Guam and to Japan, right. um, potentially to Australia. Um, but I think that we really need to think about being a bit closer because speed is going to be very important and how quickly can we react to any move or any incident that would arise uh, from a mistake or a misstep in, in the case of China.
0: Let's talk about Navy leadership uh, for a few minutes. Uh, a report that came out uh, earlier this month, Gary, uh, the title Report on the Fighting Culture of the United States Navy Surface Fleet. Uh, this is a survey of 77 current re- recently retired surface sailors. Um, this stems from some naval mishaps. There is the fire that, um, that uh, took the Bono shot in San Diego. Um, the uh, collisions of the Western Pacific in 2017 and the uh, 2016 incident, which cruise two naval patrol boats were captured by the Iranians in the Persian Gulf. Um, the study was sponsored by uh, Tom Cotton, the Arkansas Senator, uh, Jim Banks, the Congressman from Indiana, Dan Crenshaw, uh, Congressman from Texas, um, uh, conducted by retired uh, Marine Lieutenant General Robert Schmidl and uh, retired Re- Re- Admiral Mark Montgomery. Um, without the direct participation of the Navy, it might be noted. I'd like to read you a passage in this report and get your thoughts. They interviewed a commander who told the, uh, the survey team the following, quote, the Navy treats warfighting readiness as a compliance issue. You might even use the term compliance-centered warfare as opposed to adversary-centered warfare or warfighter-centered warfare. Um, this seems to be a way of saying that we're doing a lot of thinking and we're not really letting warriors be warriors.
1: Um, I, I think the the act of being a warrior rests with the warrior. Mm-hmm. Um, with respect to that report, I was, I was quite disappointed when I read it because... Uh, although it did uh, reflect opinions of those who were interviewed. uh, I think that there are are, uh, deeper underlying issues that the two authors, who I know both of them, uh, could have pulled out and could have used uh, some information as to um, why some of the pressures were there. Uh, to, you know, go back a couple of years following the two collisions that you mentioned. Mm. Uh, The Secretary of the Navy asked uh, me and um, uh, another individual who is well-versed in defense defense issues to Mm. conduct a strategic readiness review as to, um, you know, why uh, why did the the accidents happen? And, And our approach was not to find out did the the person steering the ship use too much rudder or too less rudder? We wanted to go back in time and we actually went back to 1986 is is when uh you know we won the cold war and the peace dividend was there and when you go back and you look at uh what what the size of the navy was and where the navy was deployed or operating um you know We had um, at that time, you know, around, um, if my memory serves me correctly, around 400 deployable ships, uh, half of which were deployed. And um, if you chart the number of ships that are deployed as the fleet size has come down, um, the fleet size has come down and the number of ships deployed has not changed. And so that tells you that you're pushing the ships harder. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you're pushing the crews harder, right. uh, than they have in the past. And when you also look at the effects of things like, um, uh, sequestration, uh, mm-hmm. that ate into the maintenance accounts, right. which in turn, um, caused you to delay some of the maintenance so that when you finally did get the ship into work on it, there was more work to be done. It took longer. That meant that another ship had to stay out of it longer. Uh, all wear and tear. Um, right. And so, uh, you know, I th- the other aspect too is um, our h- habit, and it really has become a habit of continuing resolutions, mm-hmm. do not allow the leadership to, you know, know how much money they're going to have, to know when the fiscal year is going to start, to be able to execute the plans. Right. And so I, I really um, think that Montgomery and Schmidt should have shared some of that information mm-hmm. because that is indicative of uh, the pressures that are being put on the fleet today. Now, with regard to um, where the priorities are, when you are this, the captain of a ship, mm-hmm. uh, your job is to make sure that it's ready for combat. Right. And, um, and to use the means that you have to train your crew uh, to be ready for the type of combat that is most that you're most likely going to face, and and so uh, it's it's very easy to say, well, I, you know, th- the problem is not me. But uh, again, and this is where I think some good data, uh, some deeper analysis on the part of the authors would have been very helpful to reinforce the point that that was being expressed as an opinion to either support it or negate it.
0: Mm-hmm. Is this unique to the Navy, Gary? Or in talking to, say, Jim Mattis or, or other Hoover fellows, you know, Mattis being with the Marines, do the other branches have similar problems? I think the the the
1: case of the other services
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, are that that they, uh, and I'm I'm putting aside Iraq and Afghanistan now, right? Um, but the Navy is a is a constantly deployed force. Mm-hmm. Uh, as I said, the, the deployment levels haven't changed since pre or since the Cold War. Mm-hmm. And 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 yet I would argue that in the case of uh, some aircraft squadrons uh, and and again, let, let's not discount the fact that we pushed the army extraordinarily hard, right. uh, Iraq and Afghanistan, and they were getting quite tired as well. Um, But in the case of the Navy, where you have capital assets that require Mm -hmm. uh, some care and feeding, I I think it is a bit of a unique situation. Uh, I may sound parochial in that regard, but um, the the heritage of the Navy, it has always been a deployed force, as opposed to deploying to go do a particular mission. It's out there all the time.
0: You know, the first time I saw you give a talk for Hoover was at a conference in Jackson Hole. And I remember you standing in front of a map of the world and uh, you just listed off every country without cheating and looking at it. You named all the stance in Central Asia, uh, but you also mentioned Afghanistan. I'm curious to your thoughts on what lessons we take away since we have now withdrawn from that country.
1: Um, I, I would say that the lessons that we take away, uh, the lessons that we've learned before, mm. um, that uh, the American people uh, do not like um, long military engagements. I think right. we've seen that over time. Um, I think the other lesson that is important um, and and prior to my Navy career, uh, I spent a fair amount of time in the Middle East where my father worked for over half a century. Mm-hmm. Um, and And I think it's important to recognize that Afghanistan is really hard. Mm -hmm. Um, It is uh, a country that is very hard to tie together because of ethnic diversity. Mm -hmm. Geographically, it's it's extraordinarily challenging. Um, And trying to centralize everything, I think, was one of our uh, was one of our mistakes. Mm -hmm. Uh, We really needed to look at the country as it is. And, and, I th- and I think that you know, we will look back on the relative stability that existed even with our lighter footprint toward the end um, and what I fear we're going to be experiencing in the months and years ahead. And I think we will realize that we were making some significant changes in that country um, that were good.
0: And I imagine we'll be hearing a lot more about a Vietnam parallel if we end up with a rather elegant withdrawal from the embassy in Kabul. Uh, speaking of Vietnam, you, um, when you were at the academy in 1973, the war would have been going on at that time. How, how did Vietnam play in Annapolis at the time? As a as a midshipman about to become an ensign, what, what did you think about Vietnam? What did you, did the did the academy openly talk about it? Did you and your classmates have thoughts on it? Did it did it weigh heavily on you?
1: Well, I think like any. Uh, college campus, there are diversity, there's a diversity of opinion. Right. Um, obviously not as as widespread at the Naval Academy and the other service academies as, you know, perhaps at Berkeley or someplace like that. Right. But um, you know, I think the other aspect was that we were there being developed and trained and and mentored as future military officers. Mm-hmm. We knew what our job was when we graduated. I think that the um, reality of Vietnam caused us to be thinking in terms of, you know, we would be, be going there. We, um, were exposed to young officers at the time. They looked ancient to me, but they were, you know, Marine captains and Navy lieutenants who had come back from Vietnam. So we right. were being, we were able to have, uh, firsthand, uh, experience, uh, influence us. <laughs> I think I, I saw the same thing at the Naval Academy as, as we uh, were engaged in Iraq and Afghanistan, where the young men and women there knew that they were going out to, you know, to serve their country, to go in harm's way, potentially engage in, in, in combat operations. Mm-hmm. And so I think when there is a conflict going on, for those who have committed themselves to that profession for whatever period of time it may be. Uh, it tends to heighten your interest, your attention, your focus, um, and your anticipation of going out and doing what the country is going to
0: ask you to do. How does the uh, Naval Academy approach uh, critical race training?
1: I, I don't know. I haven't talked to anybody at the Naval Academy about that.
0: Mm-hmm. I'm curious. As a superintendent, would you would you welcome critical race theory? Or
1: I, I think it's important that uh, young men and women who are uh, going to go out and lead. Uh, the the men and women of our nation uh, mm-hmm. need to understand and appreciate um, the, the movements that are taking place within the country. Right. Uh, I think that they uh, need to be thinking about uh, how do you uh, engage with particularly those you lead on, on questions that they may have.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, so I think it's important for those who were going to be putting in leadership positions to uh, to be extraordinarily well-informed, to be able to uh, uh, absorb a range of opinions. Uh, and as I always used to tell those who I led, as I said, always you know, try and, and, and learn as much as you can, mm-hmm. but make sure that you're also reading and listening to things that you may disagree with. Mm -hmm. uh so that you can better understand where where people may be coming from so you know again i don't know what the program is at the naval academy right but i'm hopeful that they are encouraging the young men and women there to inform themselves to try to understand uh what the various perspectives are right um, and and to open up their apertures
0: right uh, so one thing our listeners may not understand is that a retired naval officer has options, and a retired officer with a lot of stars um, has many options, one of which is to go on television and offer his or her thoughts on the world, the world's conditions, and politics. Um, this is a phenomenon that's kicked off in about the last 10 years or so. You just see retired generals and admirals going on TV and flaming parties and flaming individuals. And this does raise a question, Gary, of is this really becoming of officers, both active duty, but officers retired should, should they be engaging in politics?
1: My view is that um, military officers to include retired military officers Mm -hmm. should not engage in partisan politics. Uh, If someone wants to leave the military, uh, particularly senior officer, um, and either run for office. Um, that's up to that individual. Mm-hmm. If someone wishes to take an appointment in the government, uh, mm-hmm. and, uh, and serve in a civilian capacity, that is a choice that that individual makes. Mm-hmm. Um, but my view is if you don't jump into those arenas, right. A retired military officer should, um, be willing to offer their advice on particular issues in a, in a non-partisan way, mm-hmm. um, if asked, and, um, and, and should avoid uh, engaging. Uh, I also believe in void endorsing, because I think that that begins to identify you with one party or the other. And my concern, Bill, is that the, those who are still on active duty begin to see this, uh, politicization. Um, and, and even if they themselves do not become politicized, it, it also, I think it, it, it raises questions in non-military minds. Is the military really apolitical or not? Right. And, um, and I think that the fewer who are serving in the military today, Mm -hmm. we become distant from the public and so when someone on the radio is identified as Admiral Jones, right. um, there's no distinction. Are they active? Are they reserve? Are they still military? Are they not military? And I think that that we have moved into a period of time where uh, it, it has become very unhealthy. And, and I would like to see the retired community step back from that. Right. Uh, I would also, and I get politics, um, uh, I would also uh, like to see uh, those who are engaged in politics not soliciting the mm-hmm. military uh, to engage on one side or the other.
0: Right. Uh, so, if you are serving in the military, so the focus right now is on the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, uh, General Melly. Uh, there's a great piece by our former colleague, Corey Shockey, in the Atlantic. Uh, the headline is "What is happening to our apolitical military?" and she focuses on the general who. Received a lot of attention, both just some testimony recently in Congress, but also he is quoted in a, uh, one of the many recent books about Donald Trump that's out about just how glad he was the election was over and he could not get rid of Trump fast enough. And he was actually looking at ways to force Trump out of office. Um, the question is this, Gary, you are serving as CNO. And you don't like the commander-in-chief and you think the commander-in-chief is reckless. You think he's a menace and you want him gone, but that's a bubble thought, not an utter thought. So how do a group of officers maintain the bubble thought without it getting out? And how do you how do you conduct your job reporting to the commander-in-chief when you think the commander-in-chief is fundamentally unfit?
1: Well, I think you think in terms of serving the commander-in-chief. Right. And, um, and that individual and it's the commander-in-chief and it's the other civilians that are um, uh, appointed over you as well. And, and my view is one, uh, if, if you have personal views, uh, those are your personal views and you keep them. Uh, right. The other is that if in fact uh, an officer finds the circumstances uh, unpalatable, Mm-hmm. where you cannot in good faith serve, right. then you have uh, the opportunity to resign. Mm-hmm. And, and I used to tell the young officers and to include the, the newly minted flag officers is that you have to uh, think about ahead of time, you have to think about where your lines are going to be and, um, and, and know where you can go and where you cannot go. But I honestly believe that serving military officers should not be opining uh, on, on, on the civilian leadership in a public um, way that, that comes across as potentially partisan. And, and if the time comes where you can't uh, support it, then then I think it's time to go.
0: So getting back to that ensign who's graduating in 2023 from Annapolis, what's your advice to that man or woman as to how to survive in today's military, how to deal with the culture, how to deal with politics, partisanship, every everything that can possibly distract your role as an officer? What's, what's your advice to them?
1: Well, my first advice to an ensign or a second lieutenant graduating from the Naval Academy is the most important thing that you're going to do is to not worry about what's going on in Washington, Uh, but your job is to become the best submariner, the best destroyerman, the best pilot, the best platoon leader that you can be uh, to master your craft, if you will. That's the most important thing. Um, The other is to uh, develop yourself as a leader, which is also to understand nature of the American public because that's the young man or young woman who's raising their hand and enlisting in the military Uh, and you have to be able to understand what some of the issues or what the issues are that are are, uh, uh, moving around in the country Uh, but to develop as a leader to maintain a level of integrity uh, that begins as a, a, a young midshipman develops more as a young officer and to maintain your standards as you go through your career and know where your lines are and know what uh, is acceptable and what is not acceptable Uh, and not to focus on where am I going to be so I can be the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, but uh, being the best you can be wherever you are at that moment in time. And And I think that is what I would encourage people to think about.
0: And if you're still the uh, chief of naval operations, what would your policy be toward Twitter and social media? The destroyer skipper who wants to have his own Twitter account and wants to express his own opinions. Would you allow him or her to do that? Or would you say that, no, you're serving the country, you just better not do this?
1: Well, um, one of the things I did was uh, uh, to start using social media when I was the CNO. Um, I, I was not a Twitter person. Um, I didn't think anybody would be you know, hugely interested in how many budget meetings I attended that day. Um, but I did find that, uh, so the point we were talking about earlier, Bill, I found social media to be a, um, a wonderful insight um, into what the thinking was. Um, In the social media that I used, we made it very, very clear that it had to be civil, it had to be constructive, that it was for the good of the organization. Um, And I would say that um, for the generations that are coming along, that, um, that it can be a very, very useful leadership tool. But it also needs to be one uh, that is well grounded in principle, that maintains uh, uh, an apolitical approach, and and that should be used to advance the effectiveness of the organization. So, um, you know, to simply say you can't use social media, I think, is uh, the, the the horses left the barn. But I still think it's important that, in the interest of the institution, that that we acknowledge and commit ourselves to the standards of our profession, um, that we maintain a high ethical position um, and and to use those platforms uh, to enhance the ability of the organization.
0: Right, you once uh, were posted to Charleston, South Carolina, correct? Absolutely. Okay, I'm going to make you nostalgic. I'm looking out. I'm in Charleston right now. I'm looking out my window, and there was an enormous lightning bolt not too far away from here. So I think we're going to wrap up the podcast here because to make you nostalgic, your time in the Lowcountry, I think we're going lose power here in about five minutes. So uh, let me just wrap this up by saying that uh, it is really an honor to serve with you, Gary. Uh, all you do, uh, you're just a treasure of the Hoover Institution, and I don't know where we're going with COVID in California, but I hope we get you back on campus sometime soon.
1: Well, I'm looking forward to getting back and, uh, and and maybe a waypoint in Charleston, South Carolina might be a good way to
0: start the trip. Sounds good to me. Gary Ruffett, thanks for the interview. Thank you, Bill. Good seeing you again. You've been listening to Matters of Policy and Politics, a Hoover Institution podcast devoted to governance and balance of power here in America and around the world. If you've been enjoying this podcast, please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to our show. If you wouldn't mind, please spread the word. Get your friends to have a listen. The Hoover Institution has Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter feeds. Our Twitter handle is at Hoover Inst. That's spelled at Hoover I-N-S-T. I mentioned our website at the beginning of the broadcast. Uh, it is www.hoover.org. There's the thunder I mentioned. Uh, while you're there, please sign up for the Hoover Daily Report, which delivers the best work of Admiral Ruffhead and his colleagues your Inbox Weekdays. I also mentioned his uh, fine article he wrote for Strategica. If you go onto the Hoover website, there is a link to Strategica on the homepage. You'll find an entire issue dedicated to the future of Taiwan, including the piece by Admiral Ruffhead we've been talking about. And that's it for this podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. And we'll be back next week with a new topic, new conversation. For the Hoover Institution, this is Bill Whelan. We'll be back soon with another installment of Matters of Policy and Politics. Until then, stay safe, stay healthy, and we'll do our best here at the Hoover Institution to help you stay informed. We'll see you soon. Thanks for listening.
1: This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society. For more information about our work, To hear more of our podcasts or see our video content, please visit hoover.org.